Hey, everybody. Welcome into the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. I am so looking forward to today's guest, Taylor Lorenz, technology writer. But first, I want to thank you for tuning in. We do appreciate you listening. We'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and we'll read a few next time. And also, if you really like this podcast, subscribe, follow, get it in your whatever, your notifications so you don't miss any episodes as they occur. So let's get to Taylor. She is an author and Washington Post columnist covering technology and online culture. Before joining the Washington Post, she was a technology reporter for the New York Times in the business section. She was also previously a technology reporter at The Atlantic and The Daily Beast. Her first book, Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet, will be released this October and is available for pre-order right now on Amazon. Taylor, welcome into the back room. Thanks for having me. So before we get started on all things techie and political, I'd like to find out who you are. Where do you come from? What are you made of? What makes you tick? Start with childhood. Where'd you grow up? <laughs> well, I'm from New York City originally, and so I lived there when I was little. And then we moved to Connecticut. So I mostly grew up in Old Greenwich, Connecticut, which is about an hour outside the city, so not too far. And where, where in the city did you grow up? Um, we lived on the Upper East Side mm -hmm. when I was little okay. in a really, really tiny, tiny apartment that was, I don't know how my parents lived with kids in a one bedroom. I can barely. <laughs> I've done that. I've lived with two kids in a one bedroom apartment. Oh, man. I've also lived with I... a kid in a studio. What? That's so, I, yeah, I mean, I don't have kids yet, but I feel like they're quite loud and I don't want to think what my mom was going through <laughs> back then. They are, they are loud and they're actually some other things too. I was going to say that the way apartments are in the city these days, you can't even afford to be a couple with one child living in a studio anymore. That's yeah. too expensive. Well, it's kind of crazy what's happening. And so you're in LA now. When did you go out to LA? I moved at the end of 2020. So, so is this COVID-related? Yeah, I was in New York those early days during COVID mm -hmm. uh, in like March 2020. And I love, I, I thought I would stay, but I, I, w I was like, the first couple months of pandemic, I was like, there's no way this will last more than like two months, you know? And then when it was pretty clear that we'd be working from home indefinitely and, I, and it was really hard to travel, I just thought, well, I've always wanted to move to LA. And a lot of what I cover is out here. So, yeah. And I, I'm, I'm immunocompromised, too. So I, it's just safer to be outside, you mm -hmm. know. And, uh, and I'm sure yeah, back then, it, you know, as someone who probably believed everything that came out of Trump's mouth, you, you probably thought it was going to be over in a week, right? Because isn't that what he was saying? Like, there's only one yeah. person. Just one person has it. Be well, gone. I was working... I know, right? I was working at the New York Times at the time, and I, I kept slacking my friend who was covering COVID there. And I'm like, how long is this going to last? I remember leaving an avocado on my desk at the Times and being like, oh, well, we'll be back in the office and that avocado will be ripe. And when I came back to clear out my desk like a year, it was like summer of 2021, I think, the, the avocado had like <laughs> turned into like a rock. It was so gross. And so... As, as someone who covers the tech industry and who is political, were you that way as a kid? No, uh, not not really. I, I wasn't really that into tech. I mostly did art. I thought that I would be an artist and I wanted to, to do that when I grew up. So I was not, I mean, I had AIM obviously and Facebook in college, but I wasn't really that into tech. Growing up, I was just more doing creative 
So you were an artsy fartsy kid. Yeah. What was your passion? <laughs> like dance, music, or painting? I, you painted? Yeah, I I did all. I mm -hmm. painted. I did fine art. I did ballet for a long time. I, I kind of I I did everything. I went to music camp. I went to art camp. I yeah, and I interned for an artist, a local artist in town in Connecticut for a while, and I just thought that's what I would do with my life. So that's kind of what I was into. And as someone who does know a lot about tech these days, there's a lot of programs out there that make drawing and painting and creating things. Do you use any stuff like that? Yeah, it's so crazy. I know I've been seeing all the wild like AI art stuff and just all the tools. I actually, you know, I was thinking I wish I had access to all of that because when I was like, I went to art school for a very brief time, but it was this focus on fine art and the skill of painting or something. And I, I really liked being creative, but I liked making sculptures and doing other things. And I feel like if I had access to technology, it would have been cooler. I did make some blinged out, like, websites. Mm -hmm. uh, I do remember that. <laughs> <laughs> you could put, like, the blink thing in HTML and it would, like, make it. Oh, HTML. Know. I gave yeah. up on HTML after five minutes. I was like, I can't do this. I have no idea. <laughs> and were your parents artistic at all? Or anybody else in your family artistic? Yeah. You know what? My mom is really creative, but my grandmother, one of my grandmothers, it was always very, very artistic. And she would do these projects. Growing up, she would babysit us a lot. My family worked a lot. And so my, we would end up with my grandmother and she would make these decoupage uh, little boxes where she would like cut things from magazines and put like lacquer on top of them. And uh, it was very cool. And then she also knit and made i mean she was she was just I, I feel like i got that gene from her and politically did you come from a family that was more liberal progressive or more conservative yeah i think it was kind of a mix i mean a lot of my family's registered republicans and, and a lot are liberal too i feel like it was like most americans it's it's a grab bag of a little bit of everything <laughs> making for <laughs> fun really thanksgiving a... dinners i bet yeah. Yeah. It's kind of all over the place, but you know, it's great. You're exposed to a lot of ideas and thoughts. So when did the turn come towards technology? Because you're not only interested in it, you are an expert on it and you write about it for a living. And so it's even more than a passion. It's probably on some level, even more of a little obsession with how technology has just burst into the culture the last few years. When did that happen for you? Yeah. So I, it really happened after college. I was working, I was completely broke because I, you know, I had to pay my own rent. So I was working retail. I was working, you know, babysitting jobs and just kind of a lot of temp jobs. I worked at a call center for a while. And this girl at one of my temp jobs introduced me to Tumblr. And this was in 2009. And that is when it really changed my life. I, um, there's like, I feel like my life is like before Tumblr and after Tumblr. BT. <laughs> yeah. And after Tumblr, it just, I felt like my entire world opened up and I was really into blogging. And so, yeah, I set up a blog and then I set up many more blogs and that's when I kind of dove headfirst into Tumblr. And what was Tumblr? I mean, I, I heard of it and I may have been on it, but I didn't get social media savvy until way after that period. Oh my God. It was the biggest deal. I mean, it was like a hugely hot company, obviously ended up selling for a billion dollars. Yeah. I mean, it was a blogging platform. It was a blogging platform that had a lot of early social functionality. So like the ability to reblog 
things and and like posts and stuff like that. So yeah, it was a, it was an early blogging platform and I just, yeah, I loved blogging. I mean, I was one of those people that I read a lot of blogs after college, especially. And I just, I loved the way that people had sort of individual voices and independent, like sort of independent media, I guess you could say. And it was just so much cool stuff. I was, I was never really that into the news. I think I never felt like the news resonated with me, especially as a young person. I'm sure a lot of young people feel that way even now. And But when I found blogs, I was like, oh my God, there's all these interesting people and lots and cool stuff going on. So I thought, well, I'll do my own blog. I would say like Tumblr, it was very young and it was very, there was a lot of like social aspects to it because of the the functionality of it. So it was like very community oriented and like you could kind of meet people more easily. Like on blogs, I mean, I know people were connecting and like adding people to their blog role and stuff, but yeah, I just felt like Tumblr, there was a lot of other people in their 20s in New York that were also blogging on Tumblr. I remember being on Blogger and remember the first time I figured out how to put a widget for the Iraq war total cost. And I thought I I was Bill Gates. I was like so happy with myself that I did that. Who are your early uh, influences? Yeah. Well, I loved this writer at the New York Times, Jenna Wortham. She wrote about technology. Now she's a writer for the magazine, has a podcast, but she wrote a lot of really good cultural pieces on tech. Another writer named Amanda Hess um, was also writing around that time that I just loved her work on tech. And this girl, Katie Natopoulos, she had this blog called, I think it was called like Party Pooped. And it was like, pictures of people. She would like go on Flickr and find funny pictures from parties. And I started following her and she was so funny. And she just wrote about the internet. It was, she would post, she just understood the internet and would write about it in a way that resonated with me as someone that spent a lot of time on it. And I felt like everyone else in traditional media was writing about the internet and these social products as if they had never like used them ever. And I, So I was really inspired by the people that were writing about technology as users. I was also really inspired by a lot of early gadget bloggers. There were these, you know, especially you remember, I'm sure in like the late 2000s, early 2010s, there was this like gadget blogging era. And I, I thought, well, this is so cool because people take a piece of technology and they actually use it a lot. And then they write about it as a user. And I felt like people weren't doing that as much for software products and social media, really. So I thought, well, I want to write about tech as a user, but like almost like the way the gadget bloggers do, but about, you know, Tumblr and apps mm-hmm. like that. Speaking of the internet, there's a part of me that feels like the internet is just going to destroy the world eventually and that we were much better off before it. I look at kids and how they are obsessed with it. And I look at adults who are posting photos of their spaghetti. What is happening in our society? Like... People just live to do things for social media. Like you can't go to a concert anymore unless you're constantly recording to show other people you're doing it. Otherwise, it's not like you were there. Yeah. that. Well, this is so much about what my book is about, which comes out this fall. It's, I mean, I think that is influencer culture basically seeping into all of us. I think if you think about influencers content creators as power users of these platforms, their behavior and the way that they use these social platforms really trickled down to the regular users. And I think that they've set these precedents. I mean, 
I, yeah, I dis, I do not think the world would be better without the internet only because I, I remember how I was feeling at that time. And I was so depressed without the internet that like, I just, I never want to go back. I think what people want is connection. And that's what, you know, the, the, that's what the promise of the internet is. It's just so often warped by these tech platforms and their incentives. And I think, you know, one thing I loved about Tumblr was there were no public metrics. So no one could see how many followers you had, mm. you know, on on the platform. And a lot of it was hidden. And I think that was so much more healthy for people because I think making a lot of these metrics public messes with the incentives and messes with and sort of like puts you in this mode of public performance. And, you know, we all like to see numbers go up. So yeah, it's it's pretty broken right now. But I think we're in a weird inflection period. It's going to get better. Well, it's a good point but. you raised because I think we're, as humans, we all want affirmation. We want people to like us. And what's a better way to have people like us than to actually hit the like button, right? So it's kind of addicting. I just started TikToking this week and I was motivated by Ron DeSantis's bobblehead thing. Uh -huh. And I found it so funny what he was doing. And all I did was make a video where I just wildly exaggerated his bobblehead. And it got, I don't know, like 16,000 views in a day. And I was like, holy shit. And then I started to understand the algorithmic nature of For You and the difference between that and Twitter and other social media. And it's like, oh, you can go on TikTok and not have a, a single follower and they'll push out stuff to other people. And then I posted something yesterday and it's got like 48,000 uh, views. And so it's, it's human nature to be like, oh, that's kind of cool. It's like that Sally Field <laughs> moment. They really, really like me. So I get that. I'm guilty of doing that as well, like a lot of people, because that's just the culture we live in today. Um, but I, I think with, when it comes to kids, that's where I really, I, I just remember being a kid and like looking out the bus window and staring into space and thinking, oh, what do I want to be when I grow up? Like just... Those moments yeah. are gone because kids today, the nanosecond they have a free minute, they go on the phone. There's no time to just stare into space, to just think, to ponder. That's what I worry about. I totally get that. And I think it's so hard. And I, I know a lot of kids that are super addicted to their phones and, you know, kids don't have the impulse control that a lot of, and a lot of adults don't have the impulse control either to be off our phone. So yeah, it is it is hard. I definitely don't think, you know, kids should all be given an iPhone out of the room, but but at the same time it can be really healthy for kids to use technology and to explore their creativity. I mean, like, you know, I have little cousins that make music on their computers mm -hmm. and, you know, do a lot of really cool things. So I think it's just a matter of how you're using the tool and whether it's for something creative and inspiring or just... Right. I mean, you're 100% right. There, It is incredible for research, for all kinds of things, and for connectivity. The downside is you could be a 14-year-old girl and connecting with some 55-year-old dude living in his mother's basement. So I think management of it, especially as a parent, to just not give your kid an iPhone and let them go to town. Is it true that you coined the phrase, okay, boomer? No, I didn't coin it. I, I guess I popularized it in the sense that I wrote about it for the New York Times, but I have to give the great people of TikTok credit for that one. <laughs> uh, so you're a millennial, right? Yes. We're seeing a lot and hearing a lot from Gen Z, which is becoming a very important generation, <laughs> especially politically. 
a lot of that also has to do with the term woke and wokeism and what a lot of young people today are making us open our eyes to and becoming awake to. People are misusing and abusing that term and, you know, Elon Musk, what does he call it? The woke mind virus. Do you consider yourself woke? And what, sure, is, wo- and what is woke to you? Oh, God, I don't know if I should be answering this question. I I feel like there is really thoughtful people that can answer it way better. I guess to give it my best attempt, I mean, I believe it's a word that came from the Black community to speak to sort of a level of awareness about injustice. Mm -hmm. And I think if if that's how you still define it, which I would, is, is basically awareness of the systemic injustice that is all over our country. Yeah, of course. I mean, sure. I think... I think anyone that cares about social justice issues and equality, I guess, could, you know, be considered so. But I do think it's a term, you know, it's interesting. I I write a lot about language and a lot of my stories are about sort of the changing language of the Internet and how different terms have evolved. And I do think that there is a lot of times where these terms enter our lexicon and they're immediately used to, they're sort of weaponized, right? Or they've been in our language for a while, but then they sort of enter the cultural conversation. Mm-hmm. And I do think that that's happened with the word woke, where it's been it's been weaponized by certain political factions to kind of mean a lot of things that, you know, it's just whatever they're trying to push. I don't know what Elon's talking about with his woke mind virus. I mean, I, I don't think Elon knows what he's talking about. I don't think he knows. <laughs> <laughs> he was on yeah. Bill Maher last night. You should, if you haven't caught it. Oh yet, my God, I saw... I saw that I saw a clip on Instagram. I haven't watched the whole thing, but Bill Maher couldn't have thrown more softballs at Elon Musk if he was Gina Davis in a league of their own. Because <laughs> it was like, get a room, guys. I think yeah. Bill Maher was so fascinated and impressed and happy to have Musk in his studio. I felt like I was watching a first date. It was bizarre. Oh no, those are the worst interviews. I feel like the best interviews in terms of like celebrities or like someone like, you know, they go on TV. It's like when they get, when you get someone that pushes them a little bit, you know? So I, I'm dying I to get Musk on this on. podcast. I keep tweeting to him like, hey, come on, <laughs> come on. You know, we'll talk about all the stuff that is important to you. But I would push back on him. Uh, you mentioned your book before. I do want to get to that in a few minutes. But I, I saw a tweet of yours this week and you said, quote, the amount of shit people make up about my life is insane. And no amount of facts will ever convince them they're wrong. They've created an entire character in their mind who lived a life the polar opposite of mine in their heads based on lies they saw about me on Fox News and Twitter. Who is that character? Oh, God. I mean, I think this happens so much on the Internet. Once again, it's influencer culture. It's sort of like, you know, people develop you know, they just develop a caricature of someone to kind of paint them as the enemy and that they can then attack. And I think with me, I just see a lot of stuff ascribed to me that's ridiculous, like things I've never spoken on or said, you know, were a lot of words in my mouth. I guess, you know, the way that the right specifically likes to paint me is this, you know, hyper, I don't know, like hyper feminine, like childish, silly little girl. For a while, Tucker, you know, Tucker went on this whole rant, Tucker Carlson being like, you know, she's such a little, silly little girl and she's, you know, younger than most people. It's kind of funny because I think there's a lot of people that say that about Tucker Carlson, actually. Well, 
Yeah. And it's also like at the time, this was in 2020 at the time, I'm, and just I responded and I was like, I, I didn't respond directly to him. I would never do that. But I was, you know, explaining to people like I've been a journalist for over a decade. Like I'm a millennial. I'm in my 30s. Come on. Like I'm not a child. And then it's so funny because they flipped and now it's like, oh, I'm an angry old woman. I'm an angry, <laughs> childless, ancient They've woman. And I'm you. actually, yeah, well, they're always, they have so many age conspiracies about me where they are like, you know, oh, she's actually in her 40s, which I'll never, I mean, I'm not, but I'll never be online like, oh, guys, I'm not actually in my 40s. I'm like, I'm, hopefully I'll be in my 40s at some point. Like, what's the matter with that? Also, te you know, male tech columnists are 65 years old and no one gives them shit saying they're too old to write about technology. So it's that. It's, it's a lot about my background, too. I mean, I, I grew up in a in a nice suburb, which I'm so grateful for. Old Greenwich is really pretty, but I didn't have the type of childhood that I think a lot of people associate with that. And so it's just frustrating sometimes when I'm trying to pay off medical debt and seeing these things. Taylor, you know, they, they love to say, like, I'm a secret billionaire that controls the Internet. And you're Soros backed. I know. Of Say course, it. Like Let's everyone. make some news here. You're, you <laughs> are Soros backed. <laughs> it's just so crazy. And I mean, I also see a lot of people saying I went to schools that I never went to. And I saw some rant of somebody sent me a screenshot of some subreddit yelling about me recently. And they were like, and she did all that just to get into NYU. I'm like, when did I get into NYU? <laughs> I never went to NYU. I went to Amazing University that of Colorado. People have nothing better to do with their time. But you know, I'm glad you're them. sitting because I'm going to say something to you. This is going to be a shock to you, Taylor. Republican men have a real hard time with smart, powerful young women. Now, <laughs> I know that's shocking. I think it's intentional, obviously. The, the people on the internet do this to everyone. It's not unique to me, but it is very frustrating. So let's talk about um, your book. It's called... Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet. And it, it will be released in October, right? Mm -hmm. So what is yes. the basic premise of the book? Yeah, well, you can pre-order it now. I feel compelled to say that. So it's about the rise of the online creator industry. I cover the influencer world, covered it kind of, you know, since the beginning. And it's about from blogging, the era, the era of blogging to TikTok, how this industry, multi-billion dollar industry emerged and how these tech products were shaped over the years. It kind of talks about really influential users. I think a lot of times we have this notion that everything comes from Silicon Valley and they're the geniuses and they recognize opportunities and build it for us. And that's actually not true at all. I think if you look at the history of technology, it's a push and pull relationship and so much of the internet is defined by the power users, the content creators, the influencers, you know, and their and their emergent user behaviors. And so I, yeah, this book is kind of, kind of like a people's history of the internet in that way. It's very much like, you know, looking back at the past 20 years, how did we, how, how do we live in influencer world now? Like how did this whole multi-billion dollar industry come where people now make a living online all day and, you know, it features, it's, it's, again, I write about tech more from the user side. So it's, there's, there's stuff in there about Instagram, early Instagram, early YouTube, early Vine, all of that. And do you take a, a position one way or another, or are you just sort of assessing the landscape? Yeah, I would say, I mean, it's nonfiction reported. So it's similar to my articles in the sense that I'm not a strong opinion writer. I really think it's I like to present people sort of this vision of technology and and like here's what you know 
here's what's happening. And it's deeply dystopian and fucked up in these ways that we need to tackle. But also, let's not forget the opportunities it's created and all the amazing stuff that comes along with it. My feeling is like, I'm a techno-optimist. I love technology. I don't want to go back to a world before we had all of these systems. But I do think that the incentives of Silicon Valley are deeply fucked up and bad and wrong. And I think we need to look at our history to kind of understand how to fix the problems going forward. And I think if you read my book, you'll see like a lot of the things that we talk about today, especially online harassment, like just abuse, like, you know, just the, the way that these platforms deal with their users. You know, these are these are issues that have that have been they're they're older than you think, I guess. So I think there's lessons to be learned. And and I mean the big lesson as well is that we should respect the users and the content creators and and not just, you know, I mean it's just funny you mentioned Elon earlier. It's like his exact it's the opposite of his philosophy and you're seeing how it's going where he's kind of intentionally yeah. And also I sorry, last thing I'm just like ranting about everything in my book, but um but I will say also, I think that if you understand content creators as the new media, which I definitely undeniably that's the way that the media is going, people are getting more and more information from podcasters, from YouTubers and all of that. You really need to respect and understand this industry and how it came to be and why it functions the way that it does. So I think people will find it interesting. There are people like Musk and Zuckerberg who as one person controls so much of the data and content. One person having the key to the gates to the town square. What's your thinking on that? Yeah, I think it's horrible. I mean, I think it's dangerous. I think that we're going to look back and see that the consolidation of all of these platforms and of, and the way that they control speech and information is really not a great system. Um, I mean, I'm thinking back to the days of blogging, right? In so many ways, blogging was decentralized. I hate to word the, I feel like the word decentralized has been poisoned by the crypto people. And right. I want to just be really clear. I'm not, I'm not a crypto right. person and I'm not talking, do not believe the future is crypto shit. However, I do think that it's really important to have a robust and distributed media ecosystem um, that amplifies independent voices and can kind of fact check the powers that be. And, um, you know, what we've seen with the rise of these platforms is so much of that has been sort of information access has been consolidated. So I think it's a, yeah, I don't think it's good that they have so much power. And they also obviously have a monopoly in so many ways. It's extremely hard. It's people are always, um, you know, I started covering TikTok since it was musically, but a lot of people, I was very bullish on it early. And people are like, oh, how did you know it would be a winner? Like, how did you predict? It's like, because it's owned by a multi-billion dollar Chinese tech conglomerate. Like, and it's very telling that that is the only platform that can meaningfully compete with Facebook is something that's backed by a multi-billion dollar Chinese tech conglomerate. Like, because an average startup cannot compete with Facebook. Yeah, it's no, it's hard. funny you say that. Over the years, I've had friends who come to me and go like, Facebook sucks, we should start a new one. I'm like, you go start a new one, okay? <laughs> like, I'm not putting my money into the Facebook competitor from the ground floor. Like, there's no ROI in that deal. Yeah, no. So speaking of TikTok, aside uh, from this incredible, shocking news that I'm on it now, which has horrified my 19 year You're viral now. My daughter is horrified. <laughs> But because she's so horrified, I actually teased her the other day and, and 
told her that what I'm going to be doing to try to go viral is I'm going to be like the old guy dancing because everybody's young and dancing. But as I'm dancing, I'm going to politically rant. So I'm going to mix the rants with the dance. And I'm going to rhyme it like dance and rants, like kind of thing. And she was like, no, please don't do that. Don't do that. But, but TikTok has been in the news so much lately because of China and the congressional scrutiny and a potential ban. What do you think is going to happen? Is that just posturing? Such a, yeah, such a good question. Well, it's so frustrating as someone that covers technology to to listen to these hearings, because as I wrote for The Washington Post recently, you know, it's just... This, the misinformation that these lawmakers are spewing is out of control. I mean, they are just repeating blatant conspiracy theories that are not based in reality. And there is no basis for a lot of what they're accusing TikTok of. And in fact, there is basis that Facebook has done significantly more of what they're accusing TikTok of than TikTok has, just in terms of data privacy issues, election interference, like, you know, just a lot of really major problems, amplifying dangerous activities. So I think, I mean, I, I think we really need to get some lawmakers in government that, that understand technology. In the meantime, who knows? I, I think it would be a huge economic blow to to ban TikTok. It would be such an un insane, unprecedented move based on seemingly no evidence of wrongdoing. I mean, I think it's very legitimate to be concerned that a major social app is owned by a, you know, adversary, adversarial country. But we don't have, you know, TikTok does not, we don't have evidence of any of the things that Congress is accusing them of. So I think we should get some receipts and then come back to the table. And in the meantime, I think we need, we definitely need more comprehensive data privacy reform. I mean, I just the fact that, <laughs> like, even if you ban TikTok, China and all of these other countries can, foreign actors can buy our data, no problem. And a lot of that data is harvested from Facebook. So, yeah, I think we need to tackle the, the more systemic problems around privacy and attention and algorithms. Because the truth is there are tons of popular Chinese apps in our app store. There are tons of apps in our app store that promote really dangerous things, right? Or might be harvesting data in weird ways. And so we need to we need to put those protections in at a broader level. So true. But you got to admit, it is entertaining to watch some of these old geezers talk about social media. You see like people like Chuck Grassley make these mistakes. Like, well, why are we talking about Tic Tacs? It's just a breath man. <laughs> like, no, 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 Chuck, we're talking about TikTok. So I want to ask you about some other social media platforms. Instagram, is it ever going to be what everyone's hoping it will be and taking on TikTok and monetizing reels and all the stuff that people talk about on CNBC? No, no, it's it's not. I mean, the, the that doesn't mean that it can't have a resurgence, but the product is so... It's so bogged down. I mean, it's basically just mobile Facebook at this point where they've shoved in every single little feature and it's so much. I mean, TikTok's core innovation is really prioritizing discovery. As you mentioned earlier, somebody can go on there with no followers and have their content amplified. When you think about it, the following system, like ask, putting the burden on users and saying, oh, you have to go seek out people you like, then you have to subscribe to them. And then they have to produce a feed of content that is always in line with what you subscribe to them for, or they're going to lose their following. That's just such an inefficient way to deliver content. And so I think TikTok correctly di distributes it algorithmically and by, you know, on a, on a individualized basis, like 
if you post a video about cats, it will find an audience of people that like cats, whether or not that's your brand online. Right. So I think, you know, YouTube or sorry, TikTok or, oh my gosh, Instagram is going to have a really hard time replicating that because Instagram is is built on this ancient social graph. It's, I mean, it's over a decade old. The follower system is ingrained. The There's so much legacy sort of power dynamics there among influencers. I mean, it's just going to be very hard to like compete with the Kardashians, right? And when you, if you're an up and coming Instagram creator. So yeah, I think it would have to, make some serious changes to become that. And Twitter, we talked a little bit about that. Are you in the camp of Twitter is dying, it's going to be dead soon, everybody run to post in Mastodon, or is it too big to fail? Blue Sky is like the new one that everyone's on. Yeah, I, um, no, I mean, I don't think the way that these companies fail is, is that it's going to be that exciting to watch. Like, I think it's just going to, the the user experience is going to atrophy over time. Musk is clearly flailing. And I saw him talking about journalism micropayments this morning. I'm like, what year are we in? I think he's, he, you know, the decisions that he's making are just so inept but it has huge cultural power. And I do think that it's it's extremely hard to replicate a network. Once again, the power of social networks is from their users. And so Twitter was started at this time when like governments, celebrities, everyone was excited to be online. They all signed up for their accounts. And so they have these accounts. Now we're in a time where people don't want to sign up for accounts, right? They don't want to have one more app. They don't want to put more of themselves on the internet. They don't want to post publicly default to everyone in the entire world. I think a lot of people are aware of the downsides of doing that. They want more closed communities and privacy controls. So I just think it's going to be really hard. And I I, I don't see Twitter surviving. Certainly, it's not going to be worth $44 billion again anytime soon. Isn't it estimated but to I, be worth less than half of that now? Yeah. That's what I, I recently think so. I think something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's but but I don't think that's what Elon cares about. It's he seems very. I mean, I think he's used it to dismantle uh, public, you know, trust in journalism. And you know, he's. I, I saw a tweet this morning, just somebody showing all of the crazy right wing conspiracies that are being shoved into people's for you feeds. So I think it might be more of a political and sort of cultural project for him than it is about the money. And in which case, he's getting what he wants. I want to get back to Blue Sky for a second. Is Blue Sky of the three alternatives, is that the one that has the most viability, the one w- that's hot in that way that you kind of have to be if you're a social media app? Yeah, I think it definitely has the hype and it's managed to attract a lot of high profile users, including AOC, Drill, which is everyone's favorite Twitter account, a bunch of celebrities, Chrissy Teigen, famous Twitter celebrity. So it it has cultural relevance that Mastodon and Post and a lot of the others just don't have. Mastodon is, I mean, I think the tech industry likes it. It's just that the, the problem is, is that it's also a legacy system. There's people that have been there since 2016, 2017. And I think, can't remember if it launched in 2016 or 2017, but it, there's basically like, there's all these norms. And so people are very stringent on there. I suggested quote tweets on Mastodon and like literally got canceled on the app. People were so angry at me. So I think the decentralized system is not great. Blue Sky is also decentralized, but in a different way. I mean, it's a different sort of manifestation of that. And it's still consumer friendly enough that people can use it. And then there's T2 from this guy, Gabor, who worked at Google. 
And that's interesting too. I've seen a lot of high-profile tech people on there. I saw the information, just did a big peep on that. My feeling is that whatever comes after Twitter is not going to be a Twitter clone. It's mm -hmm. use case of Twitter. I always use this example, like say you're driving down the highway and you see something crazy on the side of the road, like a fire or something wild happen. You take a video of it. I think five to six years ago, you would have shared that video on Twitter if you're going to share it, if you wanted people to see it. I think now you would share it on TikTok, right. you know, if you want people to see it. So I just think a lot of the use cases of Twitter are going to migrate to other platforms. Yeah, but, and as an active tweeter, if Twitter was to really go away, I feel like there's a lot of people like me who would just be like, all right, that was a fun ride, but I'm done. Yeah. I'm done. I'll just yeah. make dance videos on TikTok. Like the Twitter thing without Twitter just seems like too much work to get back to that yeah. same place. And you know, to I, recreate your whole social graph. That's right. Not to interrupt. But. Right. So back to Facebook for one quick second. Um, as a, a tool, as a content producer or content aggregator, is is it just irrelevant? Yeah, I think at Facebook in terms of like the the app Facebook, like the blue app. Yeah, I do see it becoming less and less relevant in in, in the U.S. Of course, it's still incredibly relevant abroad and in different areas. But in the U.S., it's it just doesn't have the cultural. It, there's nothing happening on there that is affecting it's a lot of great spaghetti shots. News. Yeah. <laughs> and there's, I mean, look, people are still sharing, sharing news, but although that, a lot of that's been downranked, I, yeah, I just don't see it coming back on, on top, but it could last for a really long time. I mean, a lot of these tech companies kind of become big zombies and they kind of peter along. And I don't think Facebook's going away or dying overnight. I think it's sort of slowly atrophying and we'll see what they do next. In our Instagram final... is undeniably there. Right. They're way out. Tell me what you see as the next biggest thing or two in the next five years online. People always ask me this question and I'll mention what I said earlier, which is that I think people are moving into more closed communities and want more control over their experience on the internet. I feel like the 2010s was all about these big broadcast-based platforms where anybody can post something and the entire world can see it. Overnight. And I think most of us are realizing we actually don't want to reach the entire world most of the time. We just want to reach people that either care about the same things that we care about or are our friends and family and maybe some other people that are sort of adjacent to our network. So I think that we're going to see hopefully a lot more privacy controls and pr people spending time in sort of private spaces or spaces that are specifically designed for something like LinkedIn, where you know, a lot of people, I feel like LinkedIn's having a moment right now, but a lot more people are spending time on there. They're using it for, you know, to network and talk about careers. And it's become this place that a lot of people that have left Twitter have like leaned hard into LinkedIn, weirdly. I think because you can have those thoughtful, professional discussions, weirdly, on there that you just, you're not going to have on Instagram. So, right. yeah, so that's something I see. And then I see in terms of the media, I think that we are in a total upheaval in terms of trust and where people get their information. And I see us just going further and further into this media environment that is not dominated by legacy media. I think legacy media loses power increasingly and it's very hard to adapt. Thankfully, I'm at the Washington Post. And I think places like the New York Times and Washington Post are not going anywhere anytime soon, but local news continues to erode and a lot of these other sort of mid-level publications. We just saw the closure of BuzzFeed News. I think that whole, you know, 
middle ground of digital media has been hollowed out. And that's really worrying to me because I think what it's being replaced with, which is Substack newsletters and podcasts and stuff, it can be really great. And I'm a huge supporter of that ecosystem, but there is, there is value in legacy journalism and the, you know, the, the resources that come with that. And, and I think that we're going to really miss it when it's gone. And what's your thinking on AI, chat, GPT, deep fakes, like in the next five years, are we just going to be inundated with fake this, fake that? Probably. I mean, I feel like I, I do think that a lot of the fears over it are are, are are founded. I mean, it's it is terrifying. I, some of it, I I don't think will be. So, I mean, people worried about this with the rise of Photoshop. Like, oh, there's just going to be fake everything. I think that people actually have an understanding of a photoshopped image, but it's a lot easier to tell a photoshopped image from a AI generated image, just in terms of different you know things. And people still believe a lot of photoshopped images, so we're not in a great area in terms of media literacy. But yeah, I think AI is undeniably going to be transformational and it's already transforming the content world. So that's kind of terrifying because the people who are leading that charge are not the most responsible people in tech. No, and they're not going to use it for good purposes. That's the scary thing. No, they don't want to use it for that. (laughs) Taylor, you've been very generous with your time. This has been a fascinating conversation. I hope you'll come back and thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Yeah, anytime. Take care. Awesome. That's episode 69. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446. Email us at backroomandy at gmail.com or tweet to me at Andy Ostroy. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. And as I said earlier, it's also very helpful if you subscribe or follow. Uh, It's helpful to you so you know when all the new episodes are posted. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jen Hamoud, Crick and Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wynn in the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Taylor Lorenz. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week. 